Throughout history, people uh, record the last words of important figures, and these last words are often remembered long after they're dead and buried. So maybe you have had an important person in your life die, and you remember and you treasure the last conversations or the last words that they said to you. And the significance is not only the words, but the words in light of their death. So when we look at Christ on the cross, we see a man beaten and whipped, spit upon, mocked, bloody, physically exhausted, crowned with thorns, nailed in place. We see a man about to die. And with Jesus' death imminent, he has something to say before he dies. As Jesus hangs on that tree, he'll utter seven statements. We would do well to look at his words and what they mean for us in light of his death. As we go through them, I'll give you just a time frame, and these are approximate times because we don't have a, we don't have a clock on when Jesus actually said these things. But we know, according to Mark 15, 25, that it was the third hour when they crucified him, and so that would translate to about 9 a.m. for us. So, Christ utters his first statement shortly after 9 a.m., and this is it from Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this first statement of Jesus, we see his focus, and his focus is not on himself. It's not on his suffering. It's not on his pain. It's not even on his imminent death. See, the natural reaction is, in the moment of pain and imminent death, is to focus on preservation. How can I get out of this? Or on comfort. Can I have relief from this pain? Or on justice. Will I ever get even for this? But Jesus' words show he's not concerned with these things. His Focus is not natural, it's supernatural. It's concern for those who are in their sins. Even greater, it's a prayer for those who have been and are actively participating in his death. The religious leaders, the Romans, the crowd, Christ's prayer meets them in their sin and he desires to extend to them God's grace. So the first of his last words are not a plea for relief, they're a prayer for reconciliation. The staggering aspect of Christ's prayer for forgiveness on the cross is that it's impossible. See, the accumulation of sin on their ledger is past any accountant's ability to reckon. Forgiveness means to cancel a debt, but each moment the debt is escalating exponentially for those Christ is praying for. We're reminded of Matthew 21, 33 through 41, where Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard owner who goes, and he goes to a far country. He leaves the property in the hands of his servants, and then he sends messengers back to them. And with each messenger, these wicked tenants, these wicked servants, beat, cast out, and finally, finally, the father, uh, this owner, sends his son. And he says, surely 
Surely they'll respect my son. But the servants don't respect the son. They see this as an opportunity to get the vineyard for themselves, and they kill the son. Jesus tells this story, and then he asks those who are listening, what do you think the owner will do when he comes to those tenants? And the men that he's talking to, the chief priests and the elders, they respond this way. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. The crime deserves punishment, and it deserves a just punishment. And God is a righteous and just judge. He cannot just forgive. He cannot just cancel a debt. What would you call a judge who decided... After hearing all the evidence and knowing that you're guilty, would say, oh, no big deal. We'll just wipe that one off the books. We would call him a bad judge. We'd call him unrighteous, unjust. No, there's a debt and it must be paid. But more than that, what treasonous rebel fighter can hope for forgiveness from the king while actively engaged in murdering the king's son? But this is what we see, Jesus praying for the ones who are crucifying him. He is asking his father to cancel the debt, and his father will grant the request. But how? Paul will write the sentence later in Romans 5.10, and it's not hard to see how it can be linked to these words of Christ from the cross. He'll write, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This leads to two truths that we see from this first statement of Christ on the cross. The first truth is this, that Jesus stands as the mediator between sinners and his father. 1 Timothy 5 and 6 tell us there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus is the go-between, the only one who can speak to God on behalf of mankind and the one as God who meets mankind where we are. And on the cross, with this prayer, he's performing that role. But there's a second truth here. The second truth is this, that Jesus knows he must die for this prayer to be answered. Jesus knows he must die for this prayer to be answered. Jesus is not ignorant of the impossibility of the request. He knows to be truly forgiven, for the debt to be canceled, there must be a payment. So his prayer of forgiveness requires his death. His willingness to forgive signals his willingness to die. A little later, there's a second statement from Christ on the cross. This is the second statement. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus has heard all the scoffers. He's heard all the blasphemers. He's heard the revilers, the persecutors, his executioners. 
these questions and accusations have been coming all night and into the daylight hours through trials, beating, and now on the cross. Things like, have you no answer to these accusations? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the son of God? Who hit you? If you're able to rebuild the temple, save yourself. Are you not the Christ? Jesus has not given the answers expected. And sometimes he's not even dignified the question by replying. But now, now in the middle of his dying moments, Jesus hears a criminal. And Jesus answers. Luke 23, 42 records his answer. Jesus or records the, the criminal's question. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus hears that call of faith from a broken sinner. Why do I say it's a call of faith? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, let's consider. A Messiah who dies cannot come into his kingdom tomorrow or ever. But the thief desires to be remembered when Jesus comes into his kingdom. The thief believes Jesus is the Messiah, the king, and that despite all the outward evidences at that moment, Jesus will be triumphant and reign. This is what Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jesus, on the cross, a bloody mass of flesh, naked, gasping for air, nailed to the cross, does not evoke the picture of a king coming into his kingdom. But the thief expresses this confidence, which is what the word hope means in 11, Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's not a wish, but a confident assurance that what is expressed, what is expressed will come to pass. Uh, many commentators believe that the thief's request here is actually eschatological. It means at the end times, that one day the hope is that Jesus will remember this thief someday in the future. But, but listen to what Jesus responds with. Today, today, it's an immediate response. Today is the answer. Even more amazing than the thief's faith is the authority that Jesus possesses. What can a dying man promise to do for you today or tomorrow? I'll give you a hint, nothing, because he'll be dead. But first, Jesus boldly makes a promise, and then second, look at the content of his promise. You will be with me in paradise. Jesus knows he himself will enter into paradise and promises to take this thief with him to live among the righteous. Jesus knows he can enter paradise because he himself has fulfilled all righteousness and he has the authority to bring any and all who place their trust in him. What two truths do we see here from the second statement of Christ? Number one, that Jesus promises what is only his to give. Jesus can make this promise because he gives life to whom he will. 
Jesus can make this promise to take this thief with him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Peter will say in Acts chapter 4, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And again, Peter will write later, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He gives. He promises what is only his to give. And then number two, Jesus knows he must die for his promise to be a reality. Heaven is open to those who meet the standard of perfect holiness. Revelation 21 27 tells us nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. How can sinners ever be acceptable? Jesus' death accomplishes the substitutionary penalty for sins and transfers his righteousness to sinners' accounts. Romans 2 tells us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The only way for the thief to enter paradise is for Jesus to die. Still before noon, Jesus makes a third statement. Woman, behold your son. And then to John, he says, behold your mother. This, this is a tender moment from the cross. where Jesus is providing for his widowed mother by giving her to his beloved disciple as a mother and he as a son. Sometimes we forget that Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. Mary had other children with Joseph. But we've going through Mark, we've seen that Jesus' brothers and sisters think that he's delusional and insane. Mark 3 told us that they were saying he's out of his mind. John tells us that they don't believe in him. In fact, they try multiple times to speak to Jesus to get, to get him to give up this whole Messiah thing. On one of these occasions, when they're outside and his disciples come to him and say, your mother and brothers are outside. Jesus gives a preview of what we see here on the cross. Mark 3 tells us, Jesus answered his disciples, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So now on the cross, Jesus cares for his mother, but not by material or superficial or even genealogical means, but by creating something altogether new and different. Jesus is creating a new family. 
not just for his mother, but for all who will follow him. This new family is based on faith in him. Faith in Christ is like a new birth, we're told. And this new birth is into a new family, the family of God. And each and every sinner who turns from sin and trusts Christ for salvation, he or she becomes part of the family of God. This family is based not on the blood of your ancestors, but on the blood of Christ. First John tells us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, beloved, we are God's children now. Since believers are now God's children, we use terms of family like brother. Romans 8.29 says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. But this term does not only mean males, just so you know. This term is a reference for all mankind, so we can say the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Many times and often among believers, Paul uses the family as a way to speak about fellow believers. One example is when Paul directs Timothy to view his fellow believers this way in 1 Timothy. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Because in Christ... Believers are a new family. What two truths do we see here with this third statement of Jesus? First, Jesus provides a new family for all who will follow him in faith. He loves his mother, and he provides a new family for her, but not from the siblings by birth. The family he creates is from a disciple a follower who has demonstrated belief in him. And this is not merely a physical family. It's not based on genealogy or human relationship, but it's a new spiritual family based on faith in him. The second truth we see here is that Jesus knows he must die to produce this new family based on faith. Those who make up Jesus' family are born into it by his death. Paul says they are brother and sister for whom Christ died. Jesus' care for his mother is his care for all who come to him in faith. His death is a catalyst for a new family. Now, after noon, Christ has been on the cross for over three hours. He makes this fourth statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a few verses that will help us understand this statement. I'll read them to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Galatians 3, verse 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Third one, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. It's hard to grasp the enormity of this statement. You may have a friend or a sibling or a spouse or a parent who you have been separated from. But as close as those relationships are, even as as difficult as it is when they are gone, they are always limited. They have a beginning and an end. They, you have an incomplete knowledge of one another. They wax and wane. Those relationships wax and wane from day to day. But the Father and the Son had no separation in essence or thought or will or action for all of time. Jesus said in John, I and the Father are one, and he meant one. But now, now the magnitude of the separation Jesus did not just take a sin. He did not take the sin of one human. He didn't take all the small sins of humanity. He took all the sins. Of all humanity, for all time, past, present, and future. The perfect sinless one did not just bear sin. Scripture said that he became sin to bear the wrath of God. And all the wrath of God was poured out on him on the cross. This is a cry This is a cry of anguish. But these are not Jesus' words only. These are actually, actually an echo of Psalm 20, 22, verse 1. The psalmist says, and Jesus repeats, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Interestingly, the psalm is a lament. It's a pouring out of the tortured soul to God. It's a soul seemingly left alone to suffer. But in that psalm, the psalmist records his hope in God when he addresses him as my God. Throughout the psalm, it's infused with hope in God's righteous judgment for the psalmist, which will lead to a renewed relationship for many. Jesus feels the full force of God's wrath for us but in doing so, knows that God's justice will be met and the way open to a relationship with God for all who will come. What two truths do we see with this fourth statement? Number one, the innocent Jesus takes the place and the penalty for the guilty. It is an acknowledgement that Jesus has become sin for us, become a curse for us, has been stricken 
smitten by God and afflicted. He who knew no sin has become sin. In taking our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent for the guilty, the Savior for the sinner. The second truth is we see that Jesus knows he must die to completely absorb the wrath of God for sinners. All of God's wrath against sin is expended on Christ, on the cross, all of it. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And Romans 8, 1 reminds us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Jesus had to die to fully complete the bearing of all the wrath of God for us. Later in the afternoon, Jesus makes a fifth statement. He says simply, I thirst. Now, John's comment before Jesus says this in John 19, 28, John starts the verse this way. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The record here is pointing to the fulfillment of scripture, the prophetically announced plan of God from before all time. John wants the reader to know that this statement was made specifically for the fulfillment of Scripture. We have seen this throughout the Gospels. Jesus continually fulfilled Scripture throughout his ministry. Matthew demonstrates this 60 plus times that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament Scriptures in regard to his Messiahship. Mark 21 times, Luke 30 times, John 31 times. Those are specific references. That doesn't count all the allusions to the other parts of the Old Testament. From the place of his birth to the manner of his death, Jesus' life has been directed by the scriptures. And here in the last few hours of life, Jesus continues to live in obedience to the Father's preordained plan. If we miss that, we might assume that Jesus was just thirsty. But even his thirst affords an opportunity to be obedient to God. Jesus is not just demonstrating weakness or frailty as a human, but complete submission to God's will. We've seen how Jesus became sin for us, but while we could have, have our debt canceled, we were still in need of positive righteousness. The debt is canceled, but we still need righteousness. And Jesus is demonstrating perfect righteousness in this moment by speaking for the purpose of fulfilling every last scripture. We started uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 earlier, so let's finish it now. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
Jesus is an obedient collaborator, fulfilling an eternal plan. What two truths do we see here from Jesus' fifth statement? Number one, Jesus obeys the will of the Father from his first breath to his final breath. And this obedience is accomplished on our behalf. It assures us his righteousness is complete. He did not fail to obey all of the Father's will. The second truth that we see is that Jesus knows he must die to perfectly fulfill the Father's plan. Jesus knows there's one final act of obedience, the ultimate act of obedience that must take place for his submission to the Father's will to be complete. Philippians 2.8 tells us this. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Now nearing 3 p.m., Jesus makes statement number six. It is finished. Tetelestai is what John records. A declaration that Three things. A declaration that the debt is paid in full. This is a legal pronouncement. The judge has heard the case. The evidence and the testimony have been reviewed. And our sin, our debt of sin, is unimaginably large. We cannot pay it. We are guilty, condemned in our sins to death and hell forever and ever. All that is left is for the gavel to swing down and ring out through the courtroom, and the trial will be over, and our fate sealed forever and ever. But then, Jesus stands, and he offers to take on him the penalty and pay the fine we owe. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 tell us, you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Where did this happen? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And when the final payment is made, this is Jesus' pronouncement. It is finished. But there's a second meaning for this. The second meaning is that the work for which I was sent is accomplished. The debt has been paid. The work for which I was sent is accomplished. This is to, this is a receipt of service. Jesus took a commission from the Father to redeem sinners. So Paul writes in Colossians 1.14 about Jesus that it is in him we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And again, in Titus 2, 13 and 14, Paul writes, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, that's law-breaking. Jesus, dying on the cross, reads the receipt for redemption for all of mankind, and it reads, it is finished. There's a third meaning for this phrase. The debt has been paid. The work is accomplished. The sacrificial lamb has been killed for the covering of sins. 
This is the final sacrifice. The author of Hebrews differentiates the sacrifice of Christ from the Old Testament sacrifices this way. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Never in all the history of sacrifices had any priest said, no more. But after this sacrifice, Jesus the perfect sacrifice declares that there are no further sacrifices needed. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices, he says, it is finished for all time. Continuing in Hebrews chapter 10, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This statement from Jesus is a decree officially ending, officially ending all legal, labor, and religious requirements. It is finished. What two truths do we see from this statement then? One, Jesus accomplishes for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. Jesus finished all the requirements, requirements that kept sinners from the holy God. He did it by fulfilling all the requirements. And he did it for all time, for all who will believe. The second truth here is that Jesus knows he must die to pay the debt, to finish the work, and to effect the sacrifice. This victorious declaration, it is finished, can only be true. It can only be true if he completes the payment, if he finishes the labor, if he dies as the sacrifice. To conquer, he must die. It's now 3 p.m., and Jesus utters his final words, statement number seven. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So this is the moment. These are the very last words of Jesus from the cross. None of us know the moment that we will die, but Jesus does. Because he gives up his life. Because he lays it down. Because he is in control and not subject to death. He places his spirit in the care of the Father. Death does not conquer Jesus. Jesus is the victor over death. Death does not rip the spirit from Jesus' body. Jesus willingly hands over his spirit to the Father. Death does not surprise Jesus. Jesus is composed in his final moment. So composed that he can make the statement and then give up his spirit to the Father. Jesus dies giving all who will follow him a model of what faith in God looks like. He models confidently stepping into death, knowing his spirit will be with the Father. 
Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Jesus' death models a lack of fear of death and it removes that fear from believers. He himself, according to Hebrews chapter 2, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And Jesus knew that he would rise again. He had confidence that the Father would raise him from the dead. Paul acknowledges the Father's act of resurrection in Romans 6.4. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And again, in 1 Corinthians 6, God raised the Lord. So Jesus could, with faith, commit himself and trust himself to the Father. And in doing so, he shows all believers what it means to die in faith. What two truths do we see here? Number one, Jesus blazes the trail of faith in God for all who will believe. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We who believe can follow the author or the source, or the pioneer of our faith in taking our final breath with faith in God. Because Jesus has already been where we are headed. The second truth, Jesus knows he must die to be resurrected. Jesus had the assurance of the resurrection And because he died and was resurrected, we do too. A while back, we started in Romans 6, 4. So now let's read Romans 6, 4 and 5. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. His death was necessary to make possible his resurrection and ours also. And that leads us to next week. But today, will you listen to the words of Jesus from the cross? all that he accomplished for us, how can we not, how can we not worship and love and honor and obey the one who died for us? Let's pray.